Welcome back to another episode of Life With Your Dog. My name's Panos, and today we have a guest on for the second time, Dr. Michelle Rasool. Welcome. Okay. How back. Are How are you? Thank I'm very you for good having there. me back. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. It's um, we need a little bit more science <laughs> and some some proper um things that are out of my wheelhouse. That is good to discuss with uh with a, another level of professional. So um, yeah. thanks for coming back on and um, and such a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I was excited to come back and chat dogs. I kind of can't get enough of it. So really the best, can. hey, yeah, all day, every day. That's it. But you said yeah. you had some some positive feedback from the last time that um that yeah. we were on. Yeah, I had a few people just reach out and say they really, you know, found a lot of value in it. I think um, it can be really helpful for people to realize that they're not alone in the things they're experiencing and kind of, um, you know, draw information that that just resonates with them. I hope that, you know, maybe this is another chance for people to kind of hear stories that maybe they relate to. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, last time that um, we had you on, I I learned a few things. Um, in regards to like, you know, medicating dogs, mm. you know, and, and and I guess we both came to the conclusion that some people medicate for the wrong reasons or, or maybe like a lack of experience. But, um, you know, we cleared up a few things and you educated me and schooled me on a few things, which was important as well. We've got to keep an open mind. Um, I still think medicating a 16-week-old puppy just because you think that it's too much energy is crazy. Um, but there's a time and place for the right, for the right intervention at the right time. And um, exposing, you know, different sort of ideas and philosophies and understanding and experience is really important. Um, actually, there's another client that I've sent your way in the last couple of weeks um, that, you know, um, and, and I'd like to talk a little bit about that um, as well. I guess we can talk a bit about it. now. Have you, yeah. we weren't a sane angel, have you spoken with them? I, you're really testing my memory now, but uh, explain to me. Cocker Spaniels, three uh, Cocker Spaniels. Hasn't come to me yet, yeah, yeah. Is, on, is on the list to come, yeah. That's right. Yeah. So um, th- there is, and then got to a point where it's like, look, I have my opinions about the situation, mm-hmm. and um, and again, we're not naming names or anything, but the situation's too much. I think that what's happening in the home, and, and again, not to go into heaps of detail, but sometimes you know that there has to be something that needs to be done, especially if we're like, we're not going to rehome the dogs. There's three dogs in the household. Um, there's a lot going on. The fights have been intense between two of them in particular. And my client approached me asking, how about Cocker Rage Syndrome? And um, and I've heard about it. I've never witnessed it. And I haven't seen these two dogs actually fight. Um, and I thought we are going on a really good trajectory, you know, good management, getting the dogs, you know, to be active and fulfilled and actually, you know, doing all the, the the basic steps. But it got to a point, it's getting to a point now where it's like something's happening that is outside of a training situation and there's a behavioral issue that, and, and, I, and I do think that reg, um, medication is going to help with that and, of course, all the other interventions that come with it. But um, tell me a little bit about Cocker Rage Syndrome and for people that don't know what that means and for the, from the limited study that I have done on it and the research, um, pretty fascinating and it can I guess could it be hard to diagnose as well yeah so I think um I haven't recently reviewed cocker rage syndrome but um for those of you that maybe are like what on earth is this I think there were some studies quite a long time ago now they're not particularly recent that sort of found <clears throat> these lines of cocker spaniels that just seem to have these really impulsive outbursts of aggression that maybe seemed a bit out of character 
Uh, my understanding of cocker rage syndrome now is that it it is not such a cocker spaniel disease. It's more suggested to be a a broad kind of impulsive aggression thing, which kind of clocks because we see this in people. You know, there are certain people that just have impulsive outbursts of aggression, and they usually have, I guess, more broad behavioral challenges. You know, it doesn't usually just exist with some kind of like you know, yoga attending, uh, you're mindful kind of person, I can. Um, but these issues in people at least tend to have broader effects. And I think the working supposition in dogs is there is a genetic predisposition to some behavioral issues in lines of dogs. So I think breeds, it's, it's generally unhelpful, I think, to generalize in a breed. I think there is enough information for us to know that um, two border collies are more likely to be different than um, a Rottweiler and a Chihuahua in some ways in their behaviour. Um, but there are certain lines, genetic lines of Cocker Spaniels that seemed a bit more predisposed to this rage syndrome. Hmm. Um, yeah, so I look, leave me on notice for the next time I'm in. I'll have a bit more of a deep dive. I think the major challenge with uh, rage syndrome or any of these kind of um, really explosive type behaviors is that it is incredibly difficult to tease out the difference between a neurological kind of issue. So let's say a partial seizure or some kind of neurological abnormality and a kind of uh, operant or perhaps a voluntary behavior. So how much of the is the dog in control of their behavior versus how much is autonomic or out of their control? And in some ways, the scientist in me wants to really know the answer and the behaviorist or trainer in me goes, does it really matter? Uh, am I going to approach this differently? Yes, maybe. But am I ever going to find the answer? Probably not. So I think it's a really interesting one where we go, it's very easy to get caught in the weeds, I think, of, um, you know, what is my diagnosis? And it's always important for us to try and have a diagnosis when we're looking particularly in the medical world about what we think is going on with a dog. But I think approaching this one more broadly, just to give listeners context, I think you sort of said, Panos, there's, there's three dogs in a household and there's a lot of tension and fights between them. Uh, it may be more important for us to kind of look at this a bit holistically and go, what can we do for this situation maybe than to drill down for each dog but it'll be an interesting one for sure and um yeah i'm not sure if i'll be making a diagnosis of rage syndrome but we can only have a look and i think i i I believe it's not i think it's more of like a resource guiding situation Mm -hmm. and things have improved dramatically but by the time that i was able to come make an intervention there was Mm -hmm. so many so much other drama before it and you know, and then you know how it is when there's so many multiple different people in the house and everyone's got a different way. Like, you know, a family's got a different way of approaching yeah. it. And I didn't know the door was open and you thought the door was open and boom, boom, these ha- things happen. Yeah. Um, and, and it's unfortunate. It's pretty challenging for them. But um, especially when you're really attached as well, um, that yeah, and you have and you have three animals, and there's more animals that live in the house, like multiple cats and birds and stuff. So there's a yeah. lot going on. And um, and like when you have that many animals, it's not like like everyone's look, being looked after 100 percent it's just that how much time and and space and capacity do you have to to make sure everyone's needs are being met you know it can be a bit difficult as well hmm. i think ultimately the the biggest challenge can be is that you can have the most awesome fulfilling kind of lifestyle for a dog but there are plenty of dogs that just don't succeed coexisting with other dogs for whatever yeah. reason that be and things can change which is really really difficult i think for a lot of people where 
things change and what the dog used to suit doesn't for whatever reason that is. And I think broadly in behavior, we often think about, uh, you know, what problems do we manage and what problems do we treat or train and develop, you know, response substitutions and teach alternate behaviors for, you know, um, you know, I, I was telling you before, I'm, I'm minding a friend's beagle and it is so different to my dogs. My dogs are very respectful around food. They don't value it so highly. Like, how much do I take this beagle and teach it? Don't jump on the bench. Don't j- jump on the bench versus I put a baby gate up and I just manage that. You know, yeah. I think it's, it's very important with any behavior, but certainly with dog directed or inter dog aggression in the home that considering like, how much do we want to try and teach this dog you need to fit into this lifestyle versus kind of managing the environment, whatever that looks like, whether that's separating dogs, whether that's rehoming dogs, whether, you know, there are so many ways that we can manage it. And it's a very individual kind of um, plan for a family. Yeah. And I guess if you have like a, and, and it's, it's definitely a good answer because, oh, but I just wanted all my dogs to just like, hang out yeah. and, be f- and be friendly and it's like yeah, but that's not happening and it's not just once and it's happened once and now it may happen again it's like if it's happened three four five six seven times in a row and the and and they're getting worse each time it's it's either one dog lives in a special yard in one part of your backyard and then and there's and the one dog can hang out individually with with either of them and there's no drama so it's like you know and the other dog just kind of just you know can be balanced out whoever's out of the the kennel or the run and it's like, yeah, but I don't want that. And it's like, well, then you have them together and they're going to kill each other. So it's um it's important there that, you know, you have to have a bit of um and um, adaptability and you have to be a little bit more reasonable and not be, I guess you don't want to impose too much of your own self to be like, this is what I wanted, so it has to work. And, yeah, I guess that could be difficult for sure. I think so. And I think particularly when, uh, you know, as professionals, we take in clients as lay dog owners. They're the kind of people that go to dog parks and drink a coffee and check their phone while the dog just plays with other dogs often. They're not people like us maybe that are a bit more, you know, protective of their dogs or developing intentionally. And I think there can be a lot of grief for people to let go of what they hoped their dog would be, you know, to let go of the dog that they hoped would just, you know, sit under their feet at a cafe while they have, you know, brunch on the weekend or, you know, play with the neighbor's kids or whatever that that looked like in their mind, it can be really difficult to let go. And I think um, broadly for people that are dog enthusiasts, they love their dogs, that they view freedom as being a measure of good welfare for their dog. So the dog having the freedom to make choices and, uh, you know, do whatever they like, that's often really, um, really important to them. And when someone like you or I come along and we say, look, for this dog to live a healthy life, we've got to put in these structures that can feel very counterintuitive to them. And it it's not for everybody. Um, you know, I have some other clients that live their dog's life in airlocks and it just doesn't bother them. That's just normal to them. Um, but I think it can be, it is, uh, there is a sense of loss, I think, when you have a situation like this where things change and you realize as a, as a, you know, dog enthusiast that what you thought was going to be the next 10 years is maybe not going to yeah and i guess as well like and it'll be last like and, and i didn't want to mention names or put anyone on, on the spot yeah. but i think for them as well is that we got the dog for the dogs rather than okay. we yeah. got the dog because i wanted an extra dog every time yeah. i add a dog into my house it's because i wanted the dog not because my dogs wanted or needed the other dog and i think that's a big one for for, pe- for the listeners is that mm-hmm. you don't get dogs for your dogs you get a dog for you and then you try to make that pack work if you can 
For sure. And I think, uh, you know, it's really easy for us to catch people maybe when they're saying, my dog's got separation anxiety and I'm thinking of getting another dog and we can really stop that and be like, hey, uh, you know, the younger dog is really likely to take on other characteristics that aren't helpful to you. Um, but when their dogs maybe don't have overt behavioral problems, it can maybe be harder for us as professionals to be in contact with these people that, you know, their dogs are kind of rubbing along fine. And I think it's really important to remember as well, like odd things happen, you know, genetics is not one and one equals two. It's, it's really weird stuff. And sometimes we can have dogs from really robust lines that just come out a bit different and they just don't thrive in the same settings that the last, you know, couple of dogs that someone might have had of the same breed breed have um but yeah i think it's excellent advice really uh i've had 12 years between my dogs and i <laughs> still i'm not sure whether it was a you know kind of the right choice or whatever at, at times but um certainly i think using you know your own motivations rather than the dogs is is generally valuable except i guess the one caveat would be if your dog isn't going to cope with another dog you know recognizing that as well that oh, yeah. maybe that's your your personal choice that may not, you know, gel well with your dog, but uh, there's certainly ways around that. And for me, you know, raising a puppy alongside a 12-year-old dog, lots of segregation, living separate lives mostly, yeah. um, that's kind of, to me, just very normal. Yeah, it's so true. And it's something that I guess we'll, we'll talk about, like the, the everyday pet and not thinking of it that way. It's like, but dogs are the family and they're together and they all play in the yard. And it's like, but if you have a dog for purpose and for some sort of specific reason and the dog is for you to to do the work with the dog, then that just changes the whole relationship and it changes the dynamic of what the household lifestyle looks like as well. And something that um, I guess isn't thought to thought about for somebody who's just thinking i just want a dog because i enjoy dogs so yeah maybe hopefully that has triggered some thought in in some of the listeners yeah. but we'll get to today's topic that we, that you wanted to discuss and it was um about behavioral euthanasia um for the listeners that hear that word they may or may not know what that means can you give us a definition please yeah so it, i think there are many ways that people can view this, but personally for me, I consider behavioral euthanasia to be um, euthanizing a dog and euthanasia, you know, comes from uh, words that describe um, a good death, a kind death um, to dogs that are really suffering behaviorally. Um, and sometimes the term behaviorally irredeemable, irredeemable gets uh, kind of used for these dogs, which is that even if we had all the time and resources and expertise in the world, that these dogs are probably not thriving. Um, and I think it ties in really nicely to what you were talking about before, Panos, which is the relationship between an owner and their dog and kind of the way that the owner views the dog is actually really important when we consider uh, the the idea of behavioural euthanasia because we know that kind of there are lots of dogs that really struggle with life uh, and there are lots of dogs that live their lives relegated to backyards or on tie-outs or in someone's garage. And those aren't the dogs that you and I are seeing that occasionally we may have to consider behavioural euthanasia. Um, it's the dogs that have great or have complex but strong relationships with their owners where the owners are considering welfare and quality of life for those dogs, in my experience, that are the ones that I have this discussion with their owners about. I wonder, is that sort of your experience as well? 
Look, it, it hasn't been like a massive amount of times that I've recommended behavioral euthanasia, maybe more when I was working at the shelter and I would run an assessment on a dog and, you know, there was a, a select few that I was like, this is just not a good idea to put any resources into. Um, the dog's going to be, you know, potentially dangerous to other dogs and most likely to people. And it would be nice to find the perfect home, but by the time that happens, how many staff need to be bidden, how, how much, you know, like, and we have to talk about, you know, money and resources towards mm-hmm. looking after a dog. It takes like three people to go in and claim, change a kennel and and who's going to find the dog. So that would happen. There was, and there are, are a few other times where um, aggression was present, especially like intense resource guarding and not just for food, but like with many items. And then there was a baby involved mm-hmm. and, you know, um, and the people were struggling to to find a, a new home. Um, and it was, it was the only option for them. And it was a, it was a very, very heavy decision. There were other, you know, things that I suggested, but um, the, the frequency of, of the aggression in, in this dog, it, it was almost like ridiculous. He'll pick up a wood chip and boom, his resource guarding it. <laughs> it's like, what are you talking about? A wood chip. Um, and then there was like, an, and there was a few other ones, but ones that come to mind was, one of my clients, they were an elderly couple, like just retired, 65, and their daughter palmed off their, you know, um, staffy mix to them. And the dog was so, like had bitten many visitors and even the mum and the dad. And I mean, like, it was so intense that no one was able to go into the yard. And it's like, well, who can even like clean up after the dog where he would pick a fight? He was so frustrated. He he, he was He was borderline you know intense dominant you don't see many dominant behaviors but this dog meant business and and it was unfair for them you know like we just retired and now we have to look up this two-year-old dog that's trying to kill us and every single person coming to the yard and and again i see a lot of aggression day in day out but there are certain situations not just dogs but the situation the dog's in that it just doesn't it doesn't work out well and and it is an option there's other times it was like and actually in fact today i just heard of um my clients, they've got a young Great Dane, but they used to have those, um, what were they called, the Asian something, um, livestock guardian dogs. Oh, like the Caucasian Shepherd or something? It wasn't like the that. Caucasian, but the age, something Asian something. Mm. Um, so like one of them anyway. They had two of them, mm. um, five-year-old and a four-year-old, and usually there's a bit of a routine when people come onto the property, but this time routine didn't work out. Dogs didn't see somebody come in. The son's friend ran in to go grab a leaf blower and a couple of drinks. Comes out of the shed, Dog, um, the male nails him. Female comes in and boom, it was on. And they said they they intervened, the, the mum intervened and saved the, the kid's life. He was 16 years old, six foot, and the dogs were properly trying to kill him. Mm. Um, I had nothing to do with this situation. I just met them today and they said, yeah, they ended up putting the dogs down. And I said, and like, oh, what could we have done to sound like, well, those type of dogs generally most of the time do not make good pets. They, um, and they were in that situation from what I could gather is that um, there was obviously, you know, a, a protection element to what was happening, but then also there was a competition element. Like now there's two dogs trying to rip up the flesh of, of this human rather than just one dog trying to fight a person. So, you know, and then once, like how, unless you're going to have a cage for the dogs and management and put them at the special farm that never exists, what's going to happen? So they ended up um, behavioral euthanasi- behaviorally euthanizing the dogs. But um, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, yeah. And I think it touches on a lot of really, you know, important points to me, which is, 
I guess the, the reasons that I would consider this for a dog, um, I think are very, in, you know, dependent on exactly what's going on. I think you've touched on a couple of them, which is, look, the intensity or severity of the behaviour, which, you know, you've mentioned aggression. I think aggression is a, a pretty big one that's sitting out there in people's minds because of the overtness of it and the risk to sure. other people. Um, but, you know, there are certainly other behaviours that we might broadly consider it for. Um, you know, I think we're kind of jumping right into the meat of this, which I really like. But, of course, you know, we want to be investigating all the other options available to us. But certainly when these behaviours are really intense or taking over the dog's life, it, it can be worth considering. Um, you know, I think because I'm the, you know, the big reader and, you know, university buff that I am, I did a bit of reading before I came here today Perfect. and I was curious about, you know, what does the science tell us about this? Like what, because I think there's so much that can become very subjective um, in this, which is, well, this is the worst case of aggression that I've seen, but, you know, where does this fit on the spectrum? Like, do we have objective measures to this? And I think, you know, Panos, you've mentioned you're in the shelter environment, um, you know, it's a bit more objective there, I guess, whereas there's a little, little bit less emotion, but we have so much data to say that, look, the uh, testing dog's behavior is very, very challenging. Uh, it's not easily repeatable. There are, there are not really any great structured tests that we can say we promise that this will, you know, hold up to the way that the dog behaves broadly. Yeah, true. Um, but when I was having a look at this, I was sort of surprised to realize that um, there are there are a couple of studies done in the UK and Canada, which I think broadly we can extrapolate our pet populations from those countries, which is that the most common reason for death in the UK for dogs under three year old three years old is behavior, um, which was. I guess. What was that surprising. percentage? Uh, so the most common reason is behavior, but it only actually accounts for 14 or 15% of dogs that are euthanized. But broadly, out of all of the reasons that dogs are euthanized, behavior holds the biggest part, which is about 15% of those dogs oh. under three years old. So there are lots of little reasons in there. Um, but it's interesting because the second most common reason in this study that dogs were euthanized or put to sleep, uh, was from road traffic accidents. And the people that wrote this paper made an interesting comment, which is a reasonable proportion of road traffic accidents likely happened because of a, of a behavioral issue with the dog. So whether that's, you know, ineffective Under, yeah. recall or the dog is roaming or escaping or, you know, there's something else going on. Look, obviously accidents happen. Um, but I'd I probably put it more under like poor management from owners rather than a behavioral yeah. thing, but I, I, I can kind of see. Difficult to know. And mm. this was a survey, so it wasn't people actually going to look and see what's happening. It's sort of um, taking in data from vet clinics. So surveys have their benefits, which is it's really easy to get a lot of information, uh, but the information is not very nuanced or specific. Should we say as well, like, sorry to interject, but, mm. you know, a tin hat for a moment is that would we say something like, and like just to be skeptical is that, oh, it's a behavioral reason because, you know, a dog should have road sense and, you know, didn't have a good recall. And like, is there like, we, we should be, should we be careful about certain surveys saying certain things like a lot of dogs are euthanized because of road accidents, but that could be behavioral. Would that like, could there be like an agenda behind what their yeah. conclusion can come to? Like, am I being too skeptical or does that happen a lot in the scientific world? I think you can probably relax about that because this paper said, we don't know. We've sure. assumed that it's not the case. It was like it was very objective. Yeah, yeah. So they've said, look, of 
of these, you know, um, dogs that were put to sleep, that uh, the ones that had road traffic accidents were, um, we don't know if that was behavioural, sure. but we considered it. And basically this study was saying, where should we look? You know, what are the next steps for us if we want to investigate these reasons? And they mm-hmm. just kind of put that out there. Um, but aggression was certainly the most common behavioural reason that dogs were put to sleep in this study, which I think is, you know, really understandable, which, uh, you know, is such a big, big thing for I think people to deal with and and aggression can be incredibly stressful and dangerous and, and you know, really limiting for people about how they can live their life. Sure. Um, but really interestingly um, and obviously of interest to me is that 10% of those dogs that were put to sleep for behavioural reasons, only 10% had been referred to a veterinary behaviour specialist, which I they, they didn't have a percentage of how many had gone to trainers and things like that, but only 5% of them had explored medical intervention, so medications, which I found quite interesting. We obviously don't have insight from this one specific study about, you know, was that because the issues were really severe or, um, you know, there were other reasons about why they didn't do that. Um, but I did find it really interesting to hear that uh, there are so many dogs in this study that only such a small amount appeared to have considered, you know, maybe looking into the problem, which was sort of maybe not what I expected. I don't hmm. know. <laughs> what percentage um, would you have thought or assumed had? Oh, that's in, a really had... good question. I think it's interesting for me because I have a foot in each camp. I work in GP practice three or four days a week and I work in private for myself for behaviour uh, one and a half days a week. So I see a big cut of people that are interested in addressing their dog's behaviour. But in the clinic, I would say oh, that kind of checks out with the number of people that I think are sort of interested in pursuing investigation or treatment for their dog's behavior. But it didn't say who seeked any other type of behavioural modification. Yeah, there's yeah. only – this was a survey for vets, so sure. it, it kind of made sense that they couldn't explore all of these okay. kind of options. But you're right. Like, it would have been I a good question to put in the survey, though, if they have anyone done any formal training or anything. Yeah. So this was really looking at a lot of medical causes of stuff. So it was just okay. beyond the scope. I promise uh, I wasn't true. anyone being being. No, no. And, and I wasn't – I just think, yeah. like, not even from that study, but just in general. Yeah, where like you, you're I reading agree. something and you're like, this seems a little bit like you're trying to make me think of something rather than being extreme. And it's not like we haven't seen that in the last few years of, you know, things being geared in one way or another. And, you know, as somebody like yourself who's well-versed with reading articles and and research, something that w- that I wouldn't be able to read some of those papers, are, are you mindful of that while you're, while you're doing yeah. your research? Certainly, like I think as early as, you know, my undergrad at uni, we're taught to really critically evaluate um, literature that we read. And, you know, I think looking at the authors from this, it's a particularly good quality, uh, good, uh, very respected authors. And I think just recognising the limitations of surveys are exactly that, which is, hey, we, we can't actually know why all the time and we can't know. There's lots of stuff that we can't know. But certainly I don't think any of it was, there was no real... Uh, you know, agenda to this. It was just kind of looking at the data and saying, look, where should we put our efforts? You know, what should we be looking at? How can we be helping these young dogs? And what are the sort of common behavioral things that we might see? And, and how should we be trying to help these young dogs? How can we catch them in the clinic? So you said 15% of all euthanasia was behavioral? Uh, yes, in this particular study done in the UK. Yeah. So- and when, when was that? 
Oh, now you're testing me. I Doesn't don't matter. have the year open, but right. I can tell you from this author that it would be in the last probably 10 or 15 years. And what was like, what was the other bigger category? Was 15% a big category compared to all the others? Uh, just following very slightly behind was gastrointestinal disorder. So that's things like maybe foreign body, um, or obstructions, yeah. so something that in the, in the intestines or the tummy that's, that's causing a problem. Um, and then behind that, about 12% was the road traffic accident, which interestingly, the author said, Hey, like, should we consider this maybe as a behavioral thing? And they also said, Hey, should we consider GI as maybe partially behavioral? You know, are these dogs? Do they have pica? Are they eating things they shouldn't? Are they, you know, mm. resource guarding and swallowing things that they shouldn't? So I think yeah, it's sort of just exploring like, hey, what is the role in behavior in um this these euthanasias of young What girls? were the other ones? Out of the 15% was behavioral, what is what yeah. is also considered as a so the most common reason for behavioral euthanasia of that 15% was aggression, which was 54%. Mm-hmm. Um, just below that is 40%, which was road traffic accident. I know we're sort of like not sure mm-hmm. where that's at. Um, the next ones were quite small percentages and there were lots of them. I didn't write them all down, but inter-pet conflict, so aggression between pets within the home was about 6% um, and dog attack was 5%. Um, How are they not? Oh, dog attack is in like the dog was severely wounded from the attack. Yes, yeah, or, or or caused a dog attack. I think is is in this situation with an unknown dog. So they just differentiated between different type of- dogs in the home and a dog attacking another dog, say on the street. Um, and then hmm. sort of as these sort of one or two percenters, which is sort of anxiety, hyper excitability, destruction, vocal, inappropriate urination. I guess things that maybe are, are less big ticket items. That I would generally consider, um, you know. My dog pees a lot in the house. I'm over yeah. it. My son moved out. Let's just, you know, Hard kill the know. dog. It's it's you know? it's a cheap it's yeah. a cheapest thing. We can't afford the dog. Whatever. It's difficult um, to know what people's reasoning was, and there might mm. have been many other things, you know, going on. Like there could have been a dog that, you know, potentially had inappropriate urination that was, you know, just causing some really severe distress to the dog as part of a broader illness. Sure. Okay. Know, but. Yeah, on paper, it, seemed, it kind of looks a bit unfair, doesn't it? Yeah, that, that's true. And um, but it seems like most of that was aggression. If it was conflict yes. between dogs in the house and then right. dog attacking another dog, isn't that all aggression? Yeah, I think they just made sort of nuance, uh, maybe different types of aggression. Them. Yeah, and I think okay. look, the aggression broadly, I think, was more uh directed to people. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. Proportion. Um, but I don't have all the little minutiae no, of it, it, but I agree. Like when we look at all these things, the top three sort of major reasons were aggression. Yeah. So I think it ties in really nicely to this idea that, yeah, like uh, when we're dealing with aggression, it, it can be incredibly difficult. And I think the biggest thing is if we improve a dog's aggression, we always have that history sitting there. And even on that dog's best day, we have this history of, you know, something really difficult happening Um, and obviously it's very easy for us as professionals to recognize that aggression itself is a normal communicative behavior it's not there's nothing wrong with aggression we show aggression as humans all the time well not all the time but uh in our communication it, it can be quite normal and natural and it's not necessarily helpful or adaptive or great to use but it's desirable right yeah um but I think this brings. Would back you say then? Sorry again to yeah. cut you off, but those two Caucasian shepherds, we'll call them, um, yeah. almost killing that child walking into the backyard. 
I would say, well, it was like a very normal behavior. Mm, like true. the dogs just did exactly what they were bred to do. Almost more challenging because if we mm. said these dogs are anxious, they're fearful, they're defensive, we've got something to change. It's like this dog's been bred for this purpose. It's not offended by the behavior and it's not, it's nothing wrong with it. Uh, in my opinion, those are the dogs that are more, almost more challenging to manage because there's, there's really no, no curing of this dog because there's nothing really wrong with it. Uh, and so that's, in my opinion, where we have to lean more heavily on management. And um, Would you say as well, if you decide to get that breed, then that was the intention. It's just now it actually happened. It's like, oh, wow, I thought they'll just bark at him, not like grabbing by the throat yeah. and tear his jugular out. Like uh, apparently the wounds were pretty severe as well. Mm. So like, yeah, the dogs were probably trying to kill him. Yeah, it's um, ties in really out. nicely. Yeah, it's it's terrifying. And I think these dogs are bred to fight bears and fight wolves and you know, they're, they're not pet dogs. Um, it ties in really nicely, which is the idea of the size of the dog. And as much as we, we want to say, don't blame the breed, you know, all these, you know, movements more recently to kind of look more at the behavior of the dog. We just know that the size of the dog is likely to be a predictor about the risk or the damage that can occur. And don't get me wrong, you know, there are children, unfortunately, that are killed every year by small dogs, Jack Russells and things like that in particular, um, dogs with with high predatory drive. Um, but it is really fair to recognise that when we have large dogs, particularly living with, you know, elderly people that you were describing before, kids, um, you know, there's even just someone like you or me uh, that that the risk becomes pretty pretty severe very quickly um it's hard as well to like have these conversations because now we almost just said that breed specific legislations probably make some sense i mean it makes sense in the way that large dogs can cause more damage uh i think it makes no sense in the way that is it going to protect our community not really Mm -hmm. uh you know if we all had small dogs would be safer or Maybe, I guess. I can think of certainly. But if we had no cars either, people wouldn't die from car accidents. So, So, look, I think breed specific legislation on its own, not helpful. Like, could Mm. we, you know, create programs to maybe have a few more hoops to jump through if you want to own a, you know, 60 kilo garden breed? Maybe. Maybe. I'm not sure. It's a tough one because, like, how about that 16 year old? He just went to go grab a leaf blower and then he almost died. Um, I get that. I'm also on the side of, but you can't just go, I, I don't think we should then use those examples as reasons why we shouldn't own those things. Just like I shouldn't have a license to own a kitchen knife. Like I could kill my neighbors in my street or just cut the vegetables. Like, like you know, the, the, it is a very tough conversation. I don't want anyone to tell us what to do. I, I think if we are, if we're educated enough, we can probably be more responsible. If you stop treating everyone like children, we probably will stop acting like children, maybe a bit more responsible. But um, but how many hoops should someone jump through? And then who's making the rules that you should be licensed to have the dog? It's a very, very complicated conversation. It is. And I think, look, our government has already banned several breeds of dog from Australia. And I think, look, in excluding the pit bull, which very famously sort of in the mid-2000s became a big talking point because – I guess unlike all these other breeds, there were pit bulls and then, you know, Victoria, uh, actually, are they illegal in New South Wales? I didn't consider. The pit bull, yes, they are. Okay, yep. Um, Maybe it's nationwide, I can't remember, but they introduced this legislation when there were dogs, which was much more complex because 
then there's all these dogs that are at risk of euthanasia yes. based on breed. I think the remaining other dogs, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, really don't exist. It's it's banned import, um, which I'm kind of No, there's just lots of Amstaff cross Labradors. That's what <laughs> right, I said. Right, yeah, lots of red-nosed <laughs> red Staffies hanging out. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, some of them, like the Japanese Tosa, um, I actually went to the area in Japan where they were from and I was desperate to see one. Uh, but, you know, they don't really exist there because, you know what, no one really needs these big fighting breeds. And I kind of get the sentiment, which is like, eh, do we really need that kind of dog here? Like, what's its purpose going to serve? Yeah. So I, 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 yeah. The I tough one. I'm, I'm like, sometimes yeah. on the fence on that conversation. Right. <laughs> it's, it, 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 it is a tough one. But then also, you know, um, I think it was um, Pat Stewart talking about it on, on his podcast. I was saying that. You know, um, in the conversation about like, oh, people shouldn't just have a Malinois, you know, they're not pets. <laughs> but then also he was talking about his um, experience going, well, I had no business having, you know, that sort of, you know, Malinois dog. And it projected him into being, you know, the professional dog trainer that he is today. So yeah. experience and not having experience and gaining experience means that you're going to make a lot of mistakes. And I guess, you know, it, how many people also have a Caucasian Shepherd and it's an awesome dog. I got I. I I don't see many Caucasian shepherds. I've seen a few and they're pretty cool, but I would also exercise a lot of management and the people that have, you know, I guess, you know, well, well-mannered sort of um, guardian breeds is that, you know, they, they know what they're doing and they are hmm. experienced in terms of like, I don't let my people just walk into my house and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, and it, it, it is tough to, to say then that person shouldn't own that dog because they're doing the right things and that dog's yeah. living an awesome life. And, and dogs need to die for us to in- incorporate a legislation. So, you know, yeah, we digressed there. It ties into a really nice other piece that I consider when I'm talking to my clients, uh, you know, about this, which is the living situation, which is, you know, tough because I think people often wish, you know, if I just lived on a farm or I just lived in this situation that things would be fine for the dog. Um, and you're right, that living situation does play a really big role in how we can manage a dog's behaviour and whether their welfare is compromised by their behaviour. You know, if we look at a dog that has really intense dog-directed aggression that can't leave the front gate without, you know, being exposed to other dogs uh, in the area that they're in, it's incredibly challenging. Or if we yeah. have a dog with uh, you know, big territorial aggression that has people walking past all the time, that's tough. And on the other end of the spectrum, I have, you know, clients that do- have dogs with extremely high prey drive um, that become dangerous on farm properties because the dogs are really at risk of, you know, going through fences or, you know, getting into really serious injuries or roaming onto properties where they can be, you know, shot for trespassing and things like that. Um, and so when I consider these cases holistically, I'm thinking, look, you know, what is the living situation? Um, and I think the living situation, the size of the dog and the intensity of the behavior are all really fair things for us to think about. But generally, when we're looking at these dogs that have pretty severe behavior problems that are impacting on the welfare of their families or the dogs, I think one of the most challenging things can be trying to identify the triggers and having predictability about knowing what's going to trigger the dog um, because we've really talked about, you know, I don't want people to think I'm, you know, bagging guardian breeds but we're looking at this dog and going, hey, look, we in hindsight we knew that would be a trigger for that dog. We knew that he's a guardian breed, he's bred for this and this situation happened. Um, I think it can be incredibly challenging when people have a dog where they can't 
always pick the triggers yeah. um, or they can't control them and the dog maybe doesn't give a lot of warning. Mm, I think those are probably two of the things that are very difficult because while we can change some of those other things with management, yeah, the dogs that don't give a lot of warning or are very unpredictable about what causes them drama are very, very difficult to manage. Yeah, it's true. How often, if you, I don't know if you have statistics, but like in a year of doing your um, be- um behavioral stuff, mm. would you recommend? Because of course, we can acknowledge as when well, we spoke about this last time that mm. your statistics and my statistics, like I'm seeing very, very casual people, puppy stuff, mm. obedience stuff. Yes, I'm seeing lots of reactivity. I do deal with a lot of aggression beha- um, cases as well, but, mm. but you're certainly seeing more of the more intense behaviors that need to be treated so um so just for everyone to know if you were to say like oh i say like 50 of them and i'm like wow what the hell um so um but what would that number look like if there was like a rough percentage yeah i think probably in the last 12 months i have probably considered behavioral euthanasia probably under 10 times and i have probably performed maybe five behavioral euthanasias um and they they've interestingly been relatively varied. I think the usual progression for me when I'm dealing with behavioral cases is that, uh, you know, we have an intake appointment and it's probably like many of you, for you same panels, you probably have an initial where you have a look, you hear the history, you take a look at the dog and you get a feel for what's happening. You maybe map out a bit of a, a, a map forward, you know, road a roadmap forward and think, look, what skills am I going to need to do? What things am I going to need to do? I think there is a very small proportion of dogs on the first visit where I will flag that I think this is going to be a big challenge. And I think for me, one of the biggest red flags that I will that I can see is any aggression directed to the owner or the family. I think when people have a dog that uh, is a risk to the people it likes the most, then I'm always very concerned about the risk to those people but also yeah other people as well um so look i i very rarely am flagging this on the first appointment in reality most i think most dogs that i have ended up you know performing behavioral euthanasia for i work with for six or 12 months and we explore medication options and we you know have work with um, collaboratively with trainers and we have clear management plans and they probably have upwards of five or ten visits with me which are usually spread out by a month or two as well um but unfortunately the reality is is that there are some dogs and i don't know if this is just me now looking at this that particularly that seem to come bred with very severe issues and we look back at to these puppies at eight weeks and we go that that's not really normal you know what you're experiencing wasn't really normal I wonder, is that, have you experienced that yourself? Seeing any of these young dogs that have so, sort of maybe this almost doomed from the start kind of feeling? You, you mean the dogs that you happen to see, and we'll call them between like two and four years old, so like the adults now, mm. um, you, that there were clear signs from when they were mm. little? Yeah. Um, hmm. I haven't that much thought about that. I would mm. say that I typically, like typically the, Dogs that I see from puppies, the ones that I've recommended that euthanasia should be an option, I haven't had the luxury to see them as a puppy. Mm. 
Hey guys, it's Luke. Uh, I just wanted to take a moment out of the podcast to thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, Obviously, we don't just do this show just to hear our own voices. We love the fact that you guys take the time out of your day to listen to our episodes each and every week. And on that note, if you are enjoying it, we'd really appreciate it if you took a moment to leave us a review or a rating on your favorite podcast listening app. So whether that's Spotify or Apple Podcasts, if you could hit pause on this episode and and go and leave a review or a rating on the platform that you're listening into, we'd really appreciate it. It helps other people like yourself find the podcast uh, and helps us to reach more listeners and, and hopefully grow the show and grow the community around it. So we'd really appreciate it if you could. And thanks for listening. Yeah. Like intervene when they were a bit older. Um, and that makes a lot of sense because I think for for a, probably a more bigger proportion of these dogs is that problems are cumulative. Yeah. And as the exactly. dog develops and matures, um, reaches sort of um, maturity, that these things tend to escalate for them as well. That as well as uh, I like to think that if we're seeing young dogs out and identifying certain things, like mm-hmm. I really don't like that. Like, yeah, when I see like a little, you know, Foxy Terrier or Jack Russell, and he's like eight weeks old and nailing me like to the bone, like proper, like don't touch me aggression. Um, and like, and nothing like it uncalled for. Like, he seems like that, that is definitely like wired into your little tiny brain. Um, you know, you, you see situations like that, and we work through it. Um, you know, and and that, that that specific situation was so long ago, I don't remember what happened, like how the dog turned out. I'm pretty sure that it was just. Through a development, I think it was like first session, the dog was just running up muck and just doing whatever he wanted to do, resource guarding to the days. And I think once we started putting some systems in place, you know, and just like, you know, holding the resource for ourselves and sharing with the dog, the dog started to learn how to access them. But without that sort of intervention, mm. I would assume, of course, it would get so red zone that that we would have to ha- um, have these discussions, you know. And um, yeah, I, I guess to answer your question, I haven't seen that but i but i also i do feel that not that a lot of it could be like yeah there's some dogs that you can tell yeah it was definitely genetic and it wasn't um environmental um just for like the severity that the lack of warning as you said before the 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 intent behind it it's like you're gonna have to really like i don't even know what sort of punishment would need to take place to stop that for example, right? Like there's certain behaviors that you're like, I'm going to try this behavior, like don't touch me. Oh. And then I'll be like, hey, you're not allowed to do that um, compared to come inside the house and see what happens. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, and and there's certain, and, and it was not like only punishment stops aggression. But my point is that to modify certain dogs just seems like nothing's been working and and that is like the last straw because we always want it to be the last straw. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, as the exemption would be if it was at the shelter, there's not many other options we do have except for hoping for the best sort of thing. So I guess those sort of situations are different. And by the way, the shelter that I I did work at, we rehomed like 96% of dogs were being rehomed. Yeah, and um, there was a big, you know, sort of similar push maybe in sort of a little bit the later 2000s, you know, big looking at, um, uh, you know, getting to zero, this idea of not... Mm dogs in shelters but i really think it's important to remember that the idea of getting to zero accounts for behavioral euthanasia yeah. it, it doesn't account for convenience euthanasia which you know i think exactly. most people would agree but recognizing that there are dogs that have true like you know, psychiatric 
uh, really significant mental health illness rather than just like naughty or, you know, untrained or unstructured. You know, there are dogs with true, genuine kind of mental instability that likely end up in shelters. Um, and I think whenever we're exploring these these dogs that have really severe behaviours and, and we know that it can't, that dog cannot stay in the living situation it is in, often clients will ask me, well, what about rehoming or, you know, surrendering the dog? And I think, Panos, you're probably in a unique situation where you probably see some of the, have seen some of the the fallout from that, which is I am very cautious to recommend rehoming broadly for my clients because I feel a big responsibility that if this dog is going to be euthanized, then um, I think that it's important for us to have the responsibility of doing that rather than rehoming the dog and just somebody else do that well especially if the aggression is like if it's the aggression towards other dogs or or like to random certain type of people we could avoid and manage and maybe if the dog went to a new home maybe it could work out but mm. like you're right and i think this came to mind as well like one a rottweiler that i saw um anyway the guy was pretty pathetic um to, to be honest um but he had a two-year-old um Rottweiler, and I'm like, I am like not getting close to your dog, dude. Um, mm. dog would look at you with like proper, like, yeah, like, oh, I just want to bite you. Hey, not like I'm a bit unsure of you. Mm. Mm, back it up, 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 up. He's like, yeah, yeah, come closer. Yeah, yeah, come closer. I like this. And it's like, wow, it's pretty freaky to see that sort of like dominant aggression. Mm. Like, dominance is one thing, but dominant aggression just is like proper, oh my gosh, you kind of, you can feel your bones chilling, you can just feel the intent. And when I, and anyway, with this dog, second session, session one was about like, you know, working on some like ba basic loose leash walking and like get the dog out of the house and, you know, just all the regular stuff, mm -hmm. just to start doing some stuff. And I told him, this is a muzzle conditioning. At least if you can get a muzzle onto that dog, then we can start doing real work. He hadn't even purchased a muzzle until second session. In second session, he had the dog tied, we tied the dog up to, um, to a secure post he had my leash on and we we're doing the the muzzle conditioning and we're doing all right. And I'm like, cool, we'll finish on a positive note. That was a good sesh. And we'll come back next week and do some more. And then I'm like, but I need my leash back. And the lead was wrapped around his back leg. And I'm like, and he looks at me and I looked at him and I'm talking about like, I looked at the owner and I'm like, it's all right. I got your back. Um, his house was a construction site at the time. And I was standing next to like a couple of four by two pieces of timber. And he bent down to get the dog's um leg out of the leash the dog like grabbed his stomach and like was tearing so like tore his stomach open and then came for a second time at his chest and then he was hanging on his chest but he was still back tired and then i grabbed the piece of wood just the first thing i found like and i just kind of like knocked him a couple of times on the head and let go and the dog went for me but lucky i was just outside of his range because uh, he was going straight for my face um and the, there was like a it was a murder scene there was so much blood everywhere mm. and the guy was so upset and i'm like and then i think with his with his like state of mind and anger he was a quite a large guy he like he grabbed the dog like got the leash off and whatever mm. um so he made it work but the initial reason why he called me was that the dog had stepped on a nail hurt his leg he went to go investigate to help the dog and the dog nailed him so there was a sense of like relationship breakdown mm. and yeah it could have probably been fixed and you know like, or, or not well, let's not call it fixed but managed and addressed, and, yeah. and address and all that but he didn't have it in him and he was like loose cannon and he's like what should i do and i and i consulted with with quite a few like you know um of my mentors at the time and and i, and I gave him much information and 
I think one of them had seen him as well, and they recommended the same thing that the dog had to be put down. Um, you know, and and it's and and that conversation, which is another thing I want to um, talk to you about, is like how do we bring that up? How do we mm-hmm. go through it? And um, and one thing that I wanted to also add was that it wasn't behavioral euthanasia that I had to do with Ace, um, my Kelpie lab, but he had like severe epilepsy and mm. he would have like cluster seizures. So there were some weeks where like things weren't very good. And I'm like, when do we know when it's time to, you know, euthanize him? But then things would come good and everything's awesome again. I'm like, wow, look, you're great. And then two months later, boom, another cluster seizure. Mm. And um, and for so long, and I spoke to so many of my friends like in, in the in the industry, like when do you know is the right time when you're so unsure? Some days you're good, some days you're not. This is like a real tough situation. It would have been so much easier if it was just proper suffering. Mm. You know what I mean? It sounds so bad to say, but like just be proper suffering so I know I can end your suffering. But on the other hand, um, I thought if you're feeling good today but tomorrow may be bad, who am I to play God to kill you? But then on the other hand, it's fully my responsibility to take your life because I want to ease your suffering. And it's like you're such in such a conundrum, especially when you have a dog that's healthy, like maybe not like mentally healthy, mm-hmm. um, we'll call, um, or he's just his behavior is natural and normal, but it's uh, it's undesirable for society and the family and the community. But it, it just seems raw to be like, so now I end your life because I don't like your behavior. It is your responsibility. But then on like on, on another level, it seems like I don't know if it's the right thing to do. And and I'm and I'm sure a lot of people struggle with that sort of decision. Definitely. And I think, you know, I think the first thing I want to really draw back to that you've mentioned is this quality of life and welfare, which is ultimately what we're all striving for when we're training our dogs or you know, feeding them the food that we feed or exercising them or spending time with them, which is ultimately the beyond the bond between an owner and their dog is about, you know, um, enriching each other's quality of life. And you're right, quality of life isn't static. In some cases it is, like if we think about, you know, terminal illnesses or things that are progressive, it can be relatively simple. But I think the exact same challenges exist when we have, um a mental health issue or, you know, behavioral issue as, as we do with a physical issue. And I think often vets like to draw similarities between health conditions and behavior. And I think some of the time, maybe it doesn't link very well. I think they, they are quite different in some ways, but I think when it comes to quality of life, they can be very similar. Um, I use a lot of surveys, um, so, or, or questionnaires for my clients about quality of life. Um, so that I like us to get data. As you can hear, I'm very data-driven. Mm-hmm. I like to take some of the maybe sort of more ethics or morals or um, subjectivity away, and I just like to get some data and we can track that over time. So when we maybe start to look at the issues that or the the reductions in quality of life that may be occurring, I think it can be easier for us to to recognize that we're maybe not providing a very good life for a dog. And it's not all, it's not always the case. And I agree, the more episodic things are and the more variable and up and down they go, that it becomes much, much harder. And I think therefore it takes an experienced person to have a look at the trajectory and the prognosis for that dog. I can't recall the last time I made a decision to recommend behavioral euthanasia without liaising with somebody else. I think it's really important. Yeah. If not for ethics, for your own mental health, to make mm-hmm. sure you're not the one, you know, feeling like you're, you know, signing death warrants. It's it's 
I really think it, it needs to come from a place of relief of suffering. And I agree, like in some ways, who am I to make that decision? Well, in some ways, I actually spin that around and go, well, maybe I'm uniquely qualified to make that decision because yeah. I deal with quality of life every day, whether it's vaccinating little kittens or, uh, you know, taking out infected teeth or dealing with ear infections in my GP work or whether I'm dealing with, you know, dogs that have really harmed people, maybe I am uniquely qualified. And I think at some point we have to accept, yes, there will always be someone maybe with more experience than us. But when we look at this this dog situation and the client situation and any of the limitations that affect this individual dog, they're all going to be very nuanced. There's yeah. not going to be a textbook answer to this. So I think assessing quality of life, yes, we can do it in a very formal and kind of, uh, you know, rigid way. And sometimes that's really helpful to go actually look at these numbers. You know, maybe this dog doesn't have good quality of life. But I think your other question was, and I think they're, they're linked in some ways, which how do we, how do we talk to an owner about this? You know, how do we tell them, Hey, this is pretty serious. Um, in my intake questionnaire, I have a question at the very end, which is what would happen if we couldn't solve your dog's problems? And there's a huge number of people that go, well, that's fine. I just won't have guests over or, you know, continue walking the dog at 2 a.m. in the morning or whatever that is. And every now and again, I'll see something written there that, that lets me know, okay, maybe this owner's already considered it. In practicality, when I'm talking to this owner and I hear their history, there's often a little pause where we go and talk about why this has happened. And I think the most important thing in addressing this with an owner is to say, hey, I don't know if anyone's mentioned this to you, but this is very intense what you're dealing with and it's very unusual. Um, and I, it is not uncommon in this small subset of dogs that have these severe behaviours that the owner has considered has it is rare for me to be the first person to recommend this and it's common for the owner to have considered it yeah felt really embarrassed about considering it or felt like a failure or felt like a sure cool person how about the opposite when people are like listen this is how it is you are the last chance otherwise yeah. tomorrow he's dead i'm like shit no pressures like i've seen five <laughs> other trainers and they're all fucked up you need to do this now and i'm like well we've got to do something right now right right um, and i think maybe sometimes that's a bit easier it's like in a way, it's like, For well, sure. we know that this is this is on so, you, yeah, but you need right? to make this work too. And if you haven't been doing the things I've been telling you, then maybe we should put you down. No. <laughs> I think uh, I also recognise I'm very lucky to work in a space where I I have really never had to experience strictly a convenience euthanasia. I work in a nice inner suburbs of Melbourne and I have excellent clients and I am lucky with my behaviour work that I see people that are by the nature they're coming to see me very motivated to do it but you're right there are there are some people that say you're my last chance and, and that's always generally because of aggression issues not because he's just a pain in my ass it's yeah. like he bit my kid and this is the last chance yeah. we're gonna fix this and sometimes i'm like i don't think your dog should live here right um yeah, yeah it, it, that quality of life it is a hard one because how do you quantify that into a number oh this is a number seven out of ten and or maybe you do do that I, I literally okay. do do that, but it's not to make a broad call. It's to sure. look at trends over time. So yeah, I'm not true. saying like if you've got a number over f under five, then too bad. Mm. It's to look at trends and and just to have everything written down in a place. And I think the most interesting thing can to be to get two people from the same household to do the questionnaire, and often the answers will be very different. Yeah, and compare them. Yeah, extra insight there. True. Um, but yeah, I think the the last chance ones are tough because uh, we know that behavior is not a 
fast activity. It's not a definitely thing to I understand. It's not a doesn't make good TV or you know yeah, apart from true. maybe for a montage or something like that. But yeah. um, yeah, it's not a fast thing. And I think when people come wanting fast answers, I am even maybe more likely to flag to them that hey, you know, depending on your circumstance, like maybe we need to consider another option apart from treatment based on what you're telling me hasn't worked. For these things haven't worked. Yes, maybe you've seen five other trainers that have not been helpful because of whatever reason their skill sets. But sometimes when you've seen multiple people, it can be, you know, an inherent challenge for the dog. And I think, yeah, we've talked a lot about how aggression can be very limiting for dogs, but there are also other things that can be incredibly limiting, whether it's severe phobias, you know, seeing dogs jump out of windows and yeah. can't ever be left alone, ever. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, dogs that have such severe compulsive behaviours that they never stop looking for lights, ever. Oh, the light one's a tough one. Right, yeah. Or Actually, yeah, there that- was one puppy that had to be put down, um, and it was not just me but a few others that agreed yeah. that he was a little cattle dog deaf puppy and um, got so petrified, couldn't come out from under the table for days. Um, because the, they were so overwhelmed by the lights and the and the shadows that was there like too much drive to chase that it couldn't drive any like what what tap what happens there? Yeah, so I think compulsive disorders or um, issues in dogs are maybe still in their infancy of being very well understood, but there is a supposition that there's usually conflict or anxiety going around that. But often these dogs have high predatory drive. I think particularly in a deaf dog where the world probably feels a lot more insulated to that dog, uh, you know, it's it's maybe a little, uh, maybe smaller. I, I, I'm not sure if that's the correct word really for what I mean, but the dog is very, you know, I guess maybe feels a little bit more disconnected. It's just got sight as such a prominent sense for it because of that experience. Mm, you mean um, smaller because there's less information it can pick up from yeah, its yeah, world around that's, it. That's yeah. what I'm thinking. Like I think for a dog that um, maybe doesn't have this ability for us to distract them with the auditory noise or, you know, um, maybe a bit more complex for someone to develop markers, particularly if the dog is already very visually attracted to the floor. So, sure. um I think that compulsive behaviours are, we also know that they're pretty highly genetic and in some breeds of dogs we can trace them very clearly, particularly in like bull terriers. Um, yeah. You know, we can track we can track a gene now and we can go, hey, you've got the tail chasing gene. The tail chasing. Yeah. We can't find it in all behaviours in all dogs, but probably in the next you know, 10 years we maybe will be able to find those things. Um, but, yeah, I think it just goes to show that aggression is not the only reason that we would maybe consider this, particularly if... Um, if the behavior is really intense, frequent, and long in duration, that it actually it becomes a welfare concern. Yeah. And I guess maybe something to wrap up on is that the big concern for most people may not be that they're losing their pet. They may have come to terms with that. But now how do you tell your friends? Like, oh, what happened to Rusty? It's like, oh, we killed him. It's like, oh, that's fucking comfortable. Like, yeah. you know, it's, it's very awkward. People may not understand it. How do you tell people how to, like, deal with it after the fact? They come home and there's no dog around. It's kind of weird. It's really difficult for some people and very – I think for some people almost the relief is makes them feel very guilty. The relief yeah, of not true. having to, you know, manage this really intense dog. And I think it's maybe a little easier for people to understand, like if they're caring for an elderly relative or an elderly dog even at home, it's almost like the ritual of the caring brings a lot of 
you suffer a little bit, but you feel good about it because there's a very clear cause. And yeah, maybe when you have a dog with this behavioral issues, you know, you're getting up really early to avoid other dogs or you're, you know, doing whatever you need to do, airlocking all your dogs in the home or whatever that might be. And not having to do that can actually make people feel pretty terrible. Well, I never thought of that. Eh? Yeah, it's it's really common. Um, and I think that we know that losing a dog is like losing a family member. If we look at humans, you know, studies on humans about the psychological distress that we experience, it's, it's the same. So, you know, I think there are many people that have someone in their life that goes, it's just a dog, you know, come out to dinner, it's just a dog, you know, why, why can't you just leave it at home or whatever? And depending on your situation, you know, some people totally. find that easier to shake off than others. Um, yeah, I think my only advice is that there are always going to be people that don't understand whether your dog passes away from an illness or, you know, something unexpected, an accident, or has to be put to sleep because of or euthanized because of uh, behavioral issues. There's always going to be people that don't understand. But I think that particularly if you've – I think the, the, the major comfort for me would be if we've worked through this really systematically, we've got a good history and a good relationship between my client and myself and the trainer – We've explored many avenues and we can hand on heart say that we've tried everything. Uh, it still feels sucky. And I think it feels sucky because we care um, and it feels sucky yeah. because there is that relationship there. And I think it's important to, it's, I think it's important to experience that grief. It's really difficult. Um, and I think it's very important to experience it at the time to the best of your ability because it will impact your future dogs. Even even if you do your best to process it, your experiences shape your future dogs. And I think it's yeah. really essential for people when they if they do get a new dog in the future to be in the best place they can and trying not to be holding on to these things in the past because it can be quite dangerous for people to create difficulties for themselves often the opposite direction you know over socializing a dog or yeah, yeah, yeah. you know other things that that are very well meaning true mm-hmm. i guess it was also hard for a lot of um like i guess i'm gonna say the girls at the shelter because I, I was always basically the only guy yeah but it was tough for the girls after like oh one of the dogs got put down it's like all right so kennel five and six need cleaning yeah. and then there's like she's crying for the next half an hour and it's like oh kind of need to get some work done and it's a tough one right now i was pretty young maybe i wasn't like and i was still i was still bothered by the situation i'm not like yeah i'm so happy right now but it's like mm-hmm. all right well like we have to deal with that emotion later we have work to do now and i guess it'll be hard for people that are that work in the industry especially being a vet having to actually do the um the euthanizing and then on top of that like you know vet nurses and shelter staff and and all that um what advice can you give for people that have to see that day in day out and not experience the burnout and the upset and the grief and and then wanting to leave? I think it is a very hot topic in the veterinary industry right now. We know that the suicide rate for veterinary professionals is, I think, four to six times or something, the national average, and it's very challenging and COVID's done no real favours for anyone in that industry. Um, Why is that before you continue? Oh, uh, I can tell you that in our clinic, our numbers, our our clientele number went up by like something like 200% or something. So there was just so many more clients, uh, so many more dogs, uh, so many people just wanting to get dogs from anywhere. And I don't know, this is relatively anecdotal, but I saw a lot of very badly bred dogs and a very uh, maybe just hurriedly produced dogs with lots of behavior issues. And 
uh, I think people struggle during lockdown because they found it hard to adapt socialization or development programs for their dogs, which there were challenges, but I think that the mental challenges for people were much more, i.e. I can't find other dogs to socialize my dog with, whereas you and I would probably go, well, that's good news to me. I don't want to go near any other dogs. You know, I want neutrality. Um, So I think people struggled for maybe some different complex reasons. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also I think people got very tired. Uh, Clients got very tired and they couldn't come in with their pets and it was extremely stressful. So um, I really recognise that now more than ever in the veterinary industry in particular that uh, burnout and, uh, you know, challenges with mental health are a big deal. Personally, for me, I am very strict about the euthanasias that I consider. And like I said, I've been very lucky to um, to not have to really do anything that I consider convenience euthanasia. However, I am now, I've been working as a vet for, I don't know, seven, eight years now or something like that. I am at the stage where, you know, it's a little grim to consider, but I do honestly believe that there are worse things than death and living tied to a tree in the backyard for the next 10 years or, uh, you know, with injuries from another dog or whatever it may look like is not always inherently better to me. Like being alive isn't or, or inherently a marker of good welfare. So on the odd occasion that I've had a dog brought in that I have maybe gone, oh, I don't super agree with this, I personally have the ability for it not to touch me as much because I know that I spend all my other time basically working with other people that have excellent outcomes and I know that I'm doing the best welfare that I can. I know my my team sometimes struggle. It's not often, but we had one recently brought in just kind of just because it had fought with the other dog and we offered them everything and they didn't want to. And I think my team found it really hard. And interestingly, you know, I think maybe as I've got a bit more you know, senior in my experience, which it it doesn't harm me quite as much as it used to because I honestly think I'm like, yeah, that was really sucky, but this dog was going to live the rest of its life relegated from the whole family because the other dog was they were punching on or they're going to get in something really severe. There was a kid in the house. Look, these weren't all inherent risks, but at the end of the day, the owner makes the decision. And I also know that I work in a place where if I really disagreed that my boss would have my back and go, no, go go somewhere else. We're not interested. We don't want to support this. So I think my advice is (laughs) it's a bit grim, but I can't care more than my clients for their needs. And, yeah, I don't have great advice apart from I talk to my colleagues frequently about the stuff that I'm experiencing and, you know, the challenges that I experience and the questions I ask myself about how have I done the right thing. And ultimately, I just have to accept that I'm doing the best that I can and I'm going to assume so are my clients. And so, you know, we're we're all trying to do the best. And even if our outcomes are imperfect, I'm hoping that our intentions are good. Yeah, I think uh, that's good advice. Um, obviously, if you are struggling with any of those um, issues and speaking to somebody, um, a professional and a loved one and, and you know, and and reach out for, for the help that you need because, you know, um, there's definitely help out there. But if you are in a position where, you know, you're helping way more dogs and way more animals, and way more people than you are disadvantaging and, you know, and, and, and killing them, I guess, so to speak, I guess you have to run some perspective. And I guess that's one thing I did learn at the shelters. Like, yes, I know that one dog didn't live, but look how many other dogs we get to save today. Mm. And on top of that, sounds grim, 
but like we don't have to spend so much time on the other troubled one and now we get to put all the energy into the other ones. And yeah, I think, it's- again, you have to kind of like look at it numbers, not like with the head and not with the heart so much because the heart can just like mess you up in those sort of environments. Mm. This isn't if you own the dog, you have to go through mm, your process. Exactly. Very different, very different. Yeah. Mm. But if you're like in that situation, whether you're working with the animals or you're helping or or it's the advice that you think has to happen and you have to, you know, and if you are a professional, I would say like in the industry, I would be regularly checking in on, on those owners that had recently mm. had had to make that decision because, you know, um, I think I think that can go a long way. And, you know, just, hey, just checking in. I hope you're all right. Mm. Need a chat? Let me know. Or I'll give you a call um, tomorrow to say, how you're doing? Um, you know, and I think I think those little things, those little gestures can go a long way, especially when not many people kind of empathise at mm. the fact that you've lost a dog. You're like, oh, you lost a dog. Oh, it's a shame. Oh, um, so what are you doing tomorrow? And it's like crying in my bed, yeah. um, you know, it's compared better. to, yeah. you know, it's like, hey, ho- hope you're all right. Because, you know, there's heaps of clients that I've, I don't know, Starting this 12 years ago, a lot of the dogs that I started training are dead now just because I got old. Uh, like, that's trippy to me. It's really weird, actually. Um, so, um, you know, there's lots of conversations that I've had to have with clients because I've loved the dog that I helped train and now they're not around and not because of behavior euthanasia, but mm. just for other death. And, and um, you know, I think it is a very, it's a conversation that not many one of us want to talk about. You know, it's like just sweep that one under the rug. Like how many, how many, Trainers are talking about behavioral euthanasia, like, and it's not like it's a it's a common thing to to dish out, but it's happening. Um, and I think all of us will come across it. And some people would be so out of their wheelhouse of training, they're like, "I just want to train obedience commands and training. I'm not into the behavior space, so I outsource that to others." And and maybe that's another option as well. If you are a professional in the industry and you're like, "I don't even want to deal with heavy situations of of, of that," well, then you know, um, you can probably pick and choose that as well, I guess, could be other advice. Um, I, I think that's really important. And like I said, I never, I, I can't remember last time I made this decision on my own because I just think it's so much better to have multiple people looking at this and we all kind of check that we're, you know, we're making a, a, a appropriate recommendation. And yeah. I just wanted to jump on in, in Victoria, there are certainly, I'm, I'm sure interstate as well, uh, multiple um, like pet specific grief counsellors, which I think are very helpful to consider, potentially even before you're making the decision, if you are listening to this and you're someone in the position of having to make this really difficult choice, I think the more you can feel heard and have, you know, try to work through any feelings of guilt or, you know, shame that you might have, I think that's really important um, to be able to access that. And I think last time I looked to Lord Smith, who is one of our big shelters in Melbourne, had a specific service, but um, there's certainly quite a number of people online as well. And I would always encourage anyone to, you know, in this experiencing this to reach out and, and just have a chat to someone who really understands the, the things that you'll be going through. Yeah, that's solid, eh? Um, pretty heavy topic today. I think yeah. we were pretty informative and um, something that, as I said, it's kind of dark and you're like, oh, I don't know, we're all about life with your dog and not like death with your dog, you know, and 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 it's and something that, you know, I'm, I'm writing um, a book at the moment and talking about the aggression piece. It's very hard to give aggression advice in words, but um, but you have to come right towards the end. It's like, hey, like, we, I have to address this conversation to be like, if you have, uh, and again, we 
the scope of the book wasn't about talking about obsessive behaviors and things like that generally. And from the statistics you said is that a lot of behavioral euthanasia is related to aggression because it is mm. dangerous. Um, so it's something to be considered with a heavy heart. You may need to think about it. It's an option. Don't think of it as not an option because mm. sometimes living with it and going, no, no, that is absolutely not going to happen. We're going to wait for him to naturally die. Well, then maybe your elderly mum gets bitten and, 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 um, or intervene in a fight at home, as you said, and now she's got a fatal infection. She may die from it. You know, like it's mm. there's things that um that it's it's important to mention, but it's also hard to kind of give it out there. So I, I'm happy that we have this episode mm. um, of the podcast to forward onto people to be like, hey, look, like listen to this in your own time. You don't have to feel awkward that somebody's telling you this to your face, making you feel upset. Digest it how you need to. I hope less and less people over the years have to consider this and hopefully we're doing the right thing in regards to um, rehoming dogs, um, breeding dogs, um, raising dogs and, and training them appropriately from young. Um, the other day I thought about, you know, I specialize in reactivity and aggression. Generally, I think I'm, I, I excel at that more than anything. However, if I was to only specifically work on that, that's actually incomplete not to work with the young puppies because oh. that's where the young puppies are is where you were, where you, avoid those um, exactly, reactivity yeah. and aggression issues. So how could I not work with puppies and help make sure that they develop correctly if, and, and then rather than just fixing all the problems that people have occurred. So I hope that it is a less popular thing that we're like, one day we had to do that and we never do that anymore. But, um, but the reality is that it happens, especially if you're somebody who's, um, you know, in the industry, um, it happens. So, um, so yeah, thanks, Michelle, for coming on. And um, thank you so much for having me. It's been good to you know chat about all these really complex issues. Yeah, and I guess like you know, it's another thing like you said at the beginning. Like it's hard as well to like see a state of mind of a dog. You can see a broken leg, but you can't see anything broken in the head. And um, and and also the fact that you know you unifying you know the 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 behavior modification side of things and the behavior of veterinary side of things. I think merging them together and knowing when they should overlap appropriately and and it's it's not the go-to for everything, but it's it should be something that needs to be considered. And and even though we have a couple of riffs in our industry, um, that could be maybe one of them. And hopefully that we can kind of like make a bit more overlap to understand when's necessary, when's appropriate and and having these conversations is really important. And hope it encourages others to have conversations with their um, you know, um industry professionals around them as well because um I think that's really important. Yeah, absolutely. I think that I'm all about building those relationships. Uh do you mind if I do a quick shout out for an event that I have? Of course, actually? please go ahead, definitely. Just jogged my memory. I'll be heading up to um to Noosa to, uh, with Unleashed Dog Training um in Noosa to do a seminar exactly on that topic of Perfect. uh veterinary interactions um and you know working with vets and trainers together and it'll be a seminar based on um you know how do we build these relationships what are the benefits a little bit about medication and how I integrate medication into behavioral modification plans so if you're interested check out my socials there'll be details there um, I'm at DR Michelle Russell. It'll be in the show notes, I'm sure. Um, and yeah, we'd love to meet some of you if you're listening and um, come say good day. They're an awesome team up there. I just saw them when yeah. Josh Moran came out and um, everyone was awesome, very accommodating. And um, that's awesome. I hope the event goes well. Thank you. And yeah, um, maybe one day you'll do one in Sydney so I can learn love from you to. too. <laughs> yeah, love to, love to. Awesome. Well, um, uh, hopefully we'll speak again later but until then you have a great one and um thanks everybody for listening and if you have any questions don't hesitate to let us know and contact michelle if you have 
um, anything that you think that her expertise will help you. But until next time, have a good day or a good night. Thank you for listening to another episode of Life With Your Dog. Please share with your friends if you're enjoying our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook, Life With Your Dog Podcast. My name's Panos, and to keep up with my dog training adventures, tips and techniques, you can find me on Instagram at np underscore dog underscore training, my website npdogtraining.com or my YouTube channel, Nutris Pooches. Thanks for listening, guys. My name's Luke. If you'd like to find out more about my dog training services, you can find me at www.kizuna, that's K-I-Z-U-N-A, canine, C-A-N-I-N-E, .com.au. Uh, I'm also on Instagram at Kizuna Canine Training. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.